Jeremy was an atheist. I should say is. He's still alive. Jeremy is, was an atheist, and he, he was an alcoholic. I guess I shouldn't have said is, because he's not an atheist anymore. Here's what happened. Jeremy was an atheist and an alcoholic, and his story is a lot like yours and mine. He had a, a bad habit that he couldn't kick. And his particular habit caused him financial ruin, messed up his family, and it, was, it finally led him to what some people call rock bottom. Uh, and, and you might refer to him as a, uh, a beaten teachable Because he got beaten up so much, he started to become teachable. This is the way that Jeremy put it. I hit rock bottom so hard, my mind cracked open. There's something that happened where he realized, I can't fix this myself. And so he walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. And even though he was an atheist, when he saw on the walls all the various things about God, he wasn't offended because he already knew that he needed superhuman help to kick this addiction, this problem in his life. Now, alcoholism is kind of a good metaphor for sin. See, Jeremy knew that if he didn't kick his bad habit, that it was going to kill him. And that's the reality of sin in all of our lives. We have a problem that we can't kick on our own. And if it persists, it will kill us. That's the reality of of sin. Now, let's define sin. Uh, You already know sin... Uh, the biblical definitions of sin. Um, sin is the transgression of the law, First John 3, 4 tells us. And when you fail to do good, the good that you know that you should do, that's sin, James 4, 7 tells us. Sin is falling short of the glory of God, Romans three twenty three describes. And, and you might think of a, another one or two. Some talk about it as missing the mark, or you know, there's other various uh, scriptures for it. But there's, there's something about this that we need to explore. Galatians 5 teaches us uh, some details about sin. So let's look at that. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. We're going to be in uh, Matthew 5 next, but we'll, we'll look at Galatians 5 and then turn back to Matthew 5 in your Bible so we can follow along. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned those before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you notice that this doesn't match the Ten Commandments exactly? It includes things that the Ten Commandments don't include. Like, for instance, uh, drunkenness isn't anywhere in the Ten Commandments. Or um, this one where it says um, hatred or rivalry. That doesn't appear in the Ten Commandments, does it? And yet it's here. How could that be sin if sin is the transgression of the law? And the law doesn't include that. Well, Jesus, he goes deeper. And this is where we need to go to Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is his famous Sermon on the Mount. And and Jesus is trying to teach them about true religion. And he's wanting us to go deeper than the law, the letter of the law. 
Look in the next verse. It says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to hell fire. Now, notice how Jesus takes this a step further than the Ten Commandments, the letter of the law says. The letter of the law says, Don't murder. But Jesus says that actually all of the motives and emotions and, and decisions in the heart that you can't see but that leads to that thought of an action of murder, those are also sin. He takes it from the action, the outward, and he puts it into the heart. And, and this is why I'm titling a series, a two-part series, Fruit or Root. What do we deal with when we talk about sin? Are we going to pay attention to the fruit or should we get to the root of the problem? And then the, that's today, temptation um, and, and victory. And then the next time that, that I share a message with you, it's going to be about the fruits of the Spirit. How do we get those? So let's explore this a little bit. Um, in Luke chapter 6, um, verses f- um, four, uh, 43 rather, to 45, the Bible says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruits. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now, this is the idea that Jesus gives us. There's a root of sin in our lives. Now, like Jeremy, you can't kick the root of your problem. You can't fix it. In fact, Jesus makes it clear the problem is when you see bad fruit that you've got a bad tree. How many trees have you seen that uproot themselves and replant themselves? Any, anybody seen that happen in a vineyard or a, an orchard? No? It doesn't really happen, does it? You need outside help in order to fix the problem. And, and Jeremiah 13.23 asks the question, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then also you can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? The answer is no, you can't. You got a, a heart problem that needs to change. Now, if there's a problem that's beyond us to change, and it requires us to do something other than fix it ourselves, do you think there's a few of us, maybe even in this room, that would have a problem submitting to an outside help? How many of you? Just raise your hand if you feel like it's um, not a good idea to ask for help. If you can do it yourself, you might as well do it yourself. Don't ask for help, right? Uh, anybody don't, don't like asking for help? Yeah, there's a few of you. Okay. A lot more of you out there don't want to ask for help. I know that. You just don't want to raise your hand and admit it. The, the truth is, we want to fix it ourselves. And the devil has a bait and switch. He's got this, this idea that um, if we could fix it ourselves, we could, you know, just maybe stop this particular bad habit, this bad trait. You know, just stop that. Kind of like, who was it? Was it Benjamin Franklin that had his list of moral values, right? And he'd write things. Um, and we try to do that. And in fact, what happens is the root of the problem is completely ignored when we pay attention to the fruit. So, for example, let's say that you have a problem with lust. 
And let's say that you're involved in pornography. This is a bad thing. You should stop it. Um, and the devil would be happy for you to, to stop that as long as you don't pay attention to the root of the problem. You know, you, you put a Band-Aid on it. You, it's not a good idea. Just don't do it. And, and maybe you... Uh, put some internet browser safety securities on there. Maybe you ask for an accountability partner to help you. And, and all of that is good insofar as it goes. But if it's, if it's preventing you from looking at the root, the, the lust in your heart, then it's just going to crop up again. Uh, maybe your problem is greed and the devil convinces you that um, it's fine to have this desire for money and wealth and power, uh, but as long as you give a little bit of, to charity, you can't call it greed. Do you know that the, by far the highest percentage of a person's income that is given to charity is by the poorest in our country? The wealthiest give a tiny percentage, even though they give lots and lots and lots, they give the tiniest percentage of their wealth to charity. Greed isn't solved by simply giving a little bit away. Uh, maybe your problem is pride, and there, pride can show up in lots of different ways, but let's just put pride of appearance as one of those things, right? So you, you love to look good, and uh, so you, you know, do your hair, and you dress in fashionable clothes, and you put on your makeup and your, your jewelry, and, and then um, maybe you start to get this hint that the reason that you're doing this isn't just to look good, but it's because you're proud of your, the way you look, right? So, so um, instead of allowing God to get to the heart of the issue, um, Satan is happy for you to be distracted. And he's like, you know what, let's, let's get them on the modesty bandwagon. Now, modesty is good. I'm not saying it's bad, but, but when it distracts from the heart, it's kind of the bait and switch. And you become proud of your modesty rather than proud of your appearance. The problem still exists. It just crops up in a different way. Maybe your issue is that you're envious of something that someone else has or some position or money or whatever it is. And, uh, and so instead of getting to the root, the devil is happy for you to swear off that thing. Oh, I don't like it anymore. In fact, you even go one step further and say, nobody else should like that either. And then... You look askance at that person that you envied before. Oh my goodness, they like that thing too much. And now the devil has you judging, right? But, but you're, you're not envious anymore, right? See, the problem with trying to trim the fruit off of our, our tree, the bad fruit, is, is that we're kind of like drug addicts. We go from uh, meth to marijuana. You don't solve the addiction, you just change the thing that you're doing. And that's just how, that's how it would always go. And the truth is, until we realize our utter helplessness, that we have no hope of changing ourselves, then there's no possibility that we can be transformed. We need to recognize that we need outside help. We have to have somebody else in the mix. There's a fabulous story about the idea of salvation and healing Oh, I was, I was going to say something about whack-a-mole. The devil loves to do this. He, he's got a sin problem. We've got a sin problem over here, and we, we cut it out. And, uh, and then there's the sin problem crops up over here, and we cut that one out. And it's just like playing whack-a-mole. And it'll just be a game that keeps on going forever and ever. But, but here's the story in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, in John chapter 5, the story of the man by the pool of Bethesda. He's got a, a problem that he can't solve. For 38 years, he's been there by the pool. And if you know the story, you know that uh, the pool of Bethesda has this 
this uh, pagan lore about it. They say that an angel will come and, and stir the water around the time of a particular feast in Judea, uh, Judaism. And so if you can get yourself into that water and be the first one there, well, then you can be healed. And it's not God's plan. That's not how it worked. Um, but the devil had people distracted by this solution to their problem. And this man was there, distracted by the devil's solution. Jesus was out in the, in, in, around Jerusalem somewhere, teaching and preaching. The real source of healing was around, but this guy was distracted by the devil's bait and switch. But notice what happens um, in this story. In John chapter 5, uh, Jesus comes into the pool of Bethesda courtyard. He looks at this man um, I love the, the picture on the, the screen where it's got Jesus lifting up um, a, a cloth to see this man who's hiding in the shade of, the, of a little cloth that he's made. Jesus goes to pursue him, and he, he chases after him, and he asks him this question, do you want to be healed? Well, of course, the man wants to be healed, and if you read in John chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, it says, um, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus says to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. There's, there's something about this experience that I think we need to grasp when we look at the idea of living a Christian life. And we just saw uh, a baptism, the new birth experience. And sometimes we think about that new birth experience and we're like, oh, Jesus is going to give me the Holy Spirit when I'm baptized and then I won't struggle with temptation. It's an exciting thought. And then you get baptized and a few hours go by and you're like, it didn't work. Maybe I need to do it again. <laughs> and that's not, that's not what it's intended to be. The Christian experience um, isn't an instantaneous uh, transformation from not doing good things to suddenly not doing any bad things. That's not how baptism works. But, but notice this experience of this man. He's by the pool. He can't help himself. Jesus comes by and... Uh, he asks him if he'd like to be healed. Of course, he says yes. And, and then what happens? Jesus gives him a command. Now, if the man's desire was sufficient, uh, when, when he, he said, yeah, I'd like to be healed, then wouldn't he have already been healed? Desire alone isn't sufficient to, to have spiritual growth or to have victory over sin. Our desire is powerless. Now, uh, Jesus gave a command. And is that command sufficient in order to heal us, in order to fix our problem, in order to give us victory over sin? It, it has all the power necessary, but it's insufficient. You see, the, the man sitting there has to choose Jesus says, stand up, take up your bed, and go. But the man has to, in his mind, make a decision and then take action on that decision. Now, let's say he, he heard Jesus say, stand up, take up your bed, and go home. And, and then the man like, rolled, like, laid down and rolled towards the pool of, of uh, Bethesda. Would he have been healed? It's like, thank you, Jesus, for your command. I'm going to do it my way, thank you. Is, is he going to be healed? No. 
um, he has to actually follow Jesus' command in order to be healed. And I think this is something that we need to understand, the true power of the will. Uh, and when you think about the willpower, what is the will? The will is our power to choose. It's the simple um, gift that God has given us to be able to, to say, I'm going to do this, and then go and do it. Uh, you might say, I'm going to train for a 5K race. Or maybe you don't think you need training for a 5K race. Let's say a, a marathon then. You're going to train for a marathon. <laughs> I need to train for a 5K. But, um, you know, let's say you're going to train. Well, you got to actually go out and do the work, right? You have to not just make the choice, but you have to get up. You have to set your alarm. You have to go out and do it, right? There's a, a choice involved. Your will is the spring of all your actions. Now, Adam and Eve back in the garden, surrendered their will to Satan at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They submitted themselves to Satan. And from that point on, mankind has been doing the will of Satan, the pleasure of Satan. We've been just following in his, in his footsteps. Um, and Satan's plans and his desires, they're the, the natural thing that we lean to. So if we're going to have something different, if, if our life is going to be a life of victory, we have to have a change in our allegiance. We can't submit ourselves to Satan anymore. We have to change who we submit ourselves to. And this is Romans 6.16. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one to whom you obey. Who do you present yourself to? That's the power of the will. Now, you might have heard of the, the, the phrase or the term repentance. Repentance just means to turn around, right? I'm, I'm walking away from God, I turn around and I go towards God. That's the idea of repentance, the uh, kind of physical definition of that word. Uh, but the power of the will is the power of repentance. It's the power to choose which direction I'm facing. Am I submitting to Satan or am I submitting to God? Believing that Jesus could help him, this man by the pool submitted himself to Jesus. He applied his will to do God's will and to obey. This is the formula. If you, if you were to have a formula for success, for victory, this is the formula that the Bible is telling us. We need to submit ourselves to God's plan and decide to obey Him, and we need to have His power. See, what happens is Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and go. And the man chooses to do what Jesus said. And he, as he chooses, as he began to stand, his muscles and his sinews had the power of God in order to obey. Uh, last week, we had a little children's story where there was a rope and some tug of war going on, right? Uh, there, there's something about the tug towards sin. We need an assistant. And so we realize, I can't do this myself. And so we ask for help, right? And then we have to pull in the same direction God's pulling. <laughs> it doesn't work if we're pulling the opposite way from God. But, but if we're pulling in the same direction, then God has all the power we need for victory and to, to live uh, a godly life. Uh, this is from Ministry of Healing. You must remember that your will is the spring of all your actions. At the fall, this was given into the control of Satan, and he has ever since been working in man to will and to do of his own pleasure. But the infinite sacrifice of God and Jesus, his beloved son, to become a sacrifice for sin, enables him to say, without violating one principle of his government, yield yourself to me. 
Give me that will. Take it from the control of Satan, and I will take possession of it that I can work in you to will and to do of my good pleasure. And when he gives you the mind of Christ, your will becomes as his will, and your character is transformed to be like Christ's character. Uh, It wasn't very long ago, somebody asked me to preach a sermon about how do you have victory over sin? How do you have victory? It's about who you submit yourself to. When, the witness, uh, when we witness a baptism like we did today, we're, we're watching a person publicly yield themselves to Christ. Publicly say, I want Jesus to be the one who's leading me and pulling my uh, rope um, you know, behind me and, and giving me strength. But this new life, this new tree, you might say, that they have, um, it, it doesn't always produce the best fruit. It's like sometimes we, we go backwards and we change our allegiance. Uh, Peter said in Acts chapter 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that process? Like the Holy Spirit, doesn't, doesn't that make you good? You know, you've got a good tree, now good fruit, right? The, anybody that loves God is, is not going to sin, right? You remember that um, phrase from 1 John? It seems, like, it seems like there's a problem when we keep on sinning, right? when, when we keep falling after we've been baptized, after we've received the Holy Spirit, I'd like to take you to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at three principles, just a few verses there in Romans chapter 6, and starting in in verse um, 12, or verse 11, rather. There's three principles that we see. Romans 6 begins with this idea of baptism. He says, baptism is when you die to Christ and you're raised to a new life, and, and then he talks about living a victorious life. And the first principle that I'd like you to, to recognize is this principle of knowing. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Who are you in Christ? You've just been baptized. Who are you? You're a child of God. You're dead to your old life and you've been made new. You've been born again. And that's a really important principle to recognize because sometimes when we face temptation and we fall, then we think, oh, I'm not a child of God because a child of God wouldn't do what I just did. And we think, we think that, that we're, uh, I guess, now apart and, and it's, we're, we're no longer uh, the recipients of God's promises. And I think that's one of the most important things that we have to remember. We have to remember that we're God's child. Who are you in God? Know God's promises. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20 reminds us that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Not in me. They find their yes in Jesus. And so that's why we can say through him, amen to God for his glory. It's Christ's righteousness, Christ's sacrifice. It's Christ's the reason that we can have victory. The second principle that I'd like to point out is this idea of resisting. In Romans chapter 6, verse 12, he says, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. There is a, there is a uh, intentionality to applying your will to victory and to living a godly life. 
You can't just wake up in the morning and uh, go about your day and ignore God, right? You don't read the Bible, you don't pray, uh, you don't submit yourself to Him. And then when you face temptation, um, you think, um, oh, this isn't working. I keep falling into sin, right? Well, you need to submit yourself to God and resist that temptation. Both of those have to go together. And the third principle would be pursuing. Romans 6.13 says, Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your, new li- your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Submit yourself to God. Resist when temptation comes. And you've got the perfect... Um, recipe for victory. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have victory. If you're not pulling in the same direction God is according to his will, well, then you're not going to have victory, right? But what if you submitted yourself to God and you, you have a regular prayer life, you're, you're walking with Jesus, and yet you sin, you stumble into something that has tripped you up for years or something new comes along. Well, I want you to notice Proverbs 24, verse 16. It's a fantastic reminder. It says that the righteous man, what kind of a person? A righteous person falls seven times and yet he will get up. But the wicked will stumble into ruin. Notice that, that idea Seven times. It's like this perfect failure. Think about, uh, let's say, David. David, you can see him as a perfect failure. The guy, he did so many bad things in his life. Uh, He should be in prison, right? I mean, he murdered and committed adultery and had terrible parenting skills. And there's all kinds of bad things that this poor guy does. And yet, he keeps coming back to God. In deep repentance, he returns to God and he he commits himself to following God. He applies his will to, to following God. This idea of falling seven times, perfect failure, and yet he rises again. The, a Christian can fall and fall and fall again, but we're not victorious because we never struggle, and we're not victor- victorious because we never fail. We're victorious because we keep getting back up. We keep returning to Jesus and applying that power of the will, the power of repentance um, to, follow, to follow Christ. An alcoholic, if they come, if you've ever worked with one or if you've been one, an alcoholic might come to, say, Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that and, and ask for help. And they see some change, some improvement. And it's great. It feels good to them. And, it, and you're thinking it's great if you're working with them. Uh, and then... They go on a, a binge drinking thing, and, and it's like, what do they call it? Falling off the wagon. Now, what happens? Is that, is that alcoholic done? Is there no hope for them? No, absolutely not. If they just come back and say, oops, that was bad. I shouldn't have done that. I need help. If they come back and they follow the steps again, then they're going to have victory. Now, they're probably going to fall again because an alcoholic's promises are like ropes of sand. They don't hold anything. And, and, and it's going to be a time or two or 15 or 50 or 500, but if the alcoholic keeps coming back, 
then he's going to gain victory. And at first, there might be a lot of mess-ups, but as time goes by, the failures get fewer and farther between and easier to recover from. Now, we know that Christ's perfect righteousness is the only way that we can get to heaven, right? I've got an illustration just for uh, visualizing this idea. When, when I'm baptized, uh, Max was baptized today, or Max is baptized, uh, let's just say that his maturity as a follower of Jesus is down near the floor. <laughs> he, he's got a lot of growing to do, right? And all of us have had that experience. But Christ, his righteousness is way up by the ceiling, right? He is perfect, has never failed, and, and he will never fail, right? His perfect righteousness is what covers you when you're baptized. And at that moment, if you were to, to leave church and uh, die in a car accident on the way home, you would be prepared for heaven. You'd be ready, to be in Jesus' presence, not because you're good, but because Christ is good, okay? So, but, but the Christian life isn't a life of stagnancy. Life is a growing thing or it's a dying thing, right? So we want to grow. Growing is how the, the Christian is supposed to, to thrive. And so we surrender ourselves to Jesus and we face the struggles of our heart, the, the lust or the greed or the pride or whatever it is. And Jesus, he, he, he knocks at our heart door and says, can you let me into that area of your life? And you say, okay, and, and you find growth and it's exciting. And so now where you had hatred before, God is beginning to grow love in your heart. And it's amazing and it's awesome. And then something happens and you realize there's still some bad fruit which means there's probably a bad root in my life, right? And you trip up over it, and, and, and your life kind of takes a downward turn. But you repent, you come back to Jesus, he knocks on that other door in your heart and says, can I change that root too? And you give it to him, and, and things start to grow. And maybe, maybe pride stops becoming as big of an issue, and you come to life with humility and joy and, and point people to Jesus, and you're a growing person, and you get it better, and, and if it feels good, and then you trip up over something else, and then you repent, and then you grow more, and then you trip up over something else, right? The, the life of the Christian will never be the thing that saves you. Amen. It will only and always be the righteousness of Christ. And so let's say that you die after you've tripped up over something that you shouldn't have done. Will you be lost because you sinned the last moment before you died? You see, we're saved by the mercy and grace of Jesus, covered by his righteousness. The question is, is the trajectory of your life like David's, a man after God's own heart, who after every sin repented and turned to Jesus? Is that the pattern of your life? If it is, then you are covered with the righteousness of Christ and you're good and you're ready for heaven. Whether it's at Jesus' second coming or at your death, surrendered to Jesus is ready for heaven. Jesus promises in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has taken you, overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Who is the way? Jesus is the way. Jesus is our way of escape, and the Holy Spirit is the power behind every victory that you have. Every desire for good comes from the Holy Spirit. God says in James 4, 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
And here's a promise I want you to to end with in your mind. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. God has good things in mind. And he says this, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you want to be a Christian that's experiencing victory? I'd like you to think about it. Less, I think I should say it differently. I'd like you to think less about trimming the fruit in your life and more about surrendering to the God who can transform the tree of your life. Will you stand with me?